It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. He's Will Massasak, storyteller extraordinaire. And she's Emily Lutzker, culture vulture and, and this, this is the, the aces, aces artist choice podcast the aces are the artist choice awards inclusive awards recognizing achievements in film as voted upon by people working in the arts you are listening to the aces artist choice podcast season three episode two as we continue uh our uh, quest to talk to lots of different people who are artists and creatives about uh, 2017 films and just generally talking about the movies. That's what we do here. And uh, I am your host, Will Massasak. Uh, and with me today is a special guest uh, who is originally from, I'm going to say he's originally from the East Coast. I think Brooklyn, New York might be close to the right answer, but we'll let him answer. Uh, he is the uh, writer, director, cinematographer, uh, you might have seen his work in the anthology film Prison uh, and uh, some other exciting stuff. He's Lee Peterkin, and he is with us. How are you, sir? Great. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm alive. I'm in California. You know, are you are you you're relocated to California, person? That's what I gathered, right? Yeah, I'm living in Los Angeles now. Um, from New York, from um, Westchester, New York. Actually, oh, yeah. I was born in Sleepy Hollow. Um, okay. And you, which, but you with your with your head though you 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 were not born without a head. Still got my head. Still yeah. got my head. Uh, made it out alive, which is the important part. And then I lived in uh, I lived in Brooklyn for close to ten years, and then ended up here in Los Angeles. So did you uh, bring your skinny jeans with you to Los Angeles? Like, do you live in Silver oh, Lake yeah. or Echo Park or this kind of? Yes, I did. I brought my skinny jeans and moved to <laughs> to Thai Town. Oh yeah, close um, enough. You're just you're right around the corner from Silver Lake. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> Perfect. So, um, so you know, in the spirit of the the ACs, I don't know. You know, it's it's. I think you're sort of a new, um, you're a new recruit. So you know, really, the thing that's interesting about this is talking to people who are not just film people, although you know, film people are have uh, an interesting take on films, but just people who are creatives and kind of have a little bit broader palette on films that they see and just in the way that they think about them and are interested in them because, you know, there's a little bit of a um, homogenization of, of the bigger films. And so kind of have this whole, like a uh, whole swath of films that are, that, that are very often overlooked or uh, performances or the kinds of storytellers that are overlooked. So in that context, um, you know, let's talk about what you what you liked. The last episode it was uh, the last episode on the podcast. We talked about stuff we hated about everything. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to start you very specifically with something that you really liked uh, from the 2017 films, and let's talk a little bit about what you like. Um, well, the films that that I enjoyed from 2017 are looking back. I mean, I don't know if um, I guess Phantom Thread doesn't really 
That counts. Came out in sure. December. Oh, it totally counts. And it's an auteur director, you know. Sure. It totally counts as a yeah. film. Because I don't, you know. But you, um, you, sure. I just feel like I got to get that one out of the way because it's it's so um, glaringly at, at the forefront of um, you know the best films of 2017, and um, that that's my favorite. I mean, I Tanya was fantastic. Um, okay, we're we're gonna talk about I Tanya because this is I haven't seen Phantom Thread yet. I Tanya is my favorite film of the year, so we'll 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 get to that. But tell me before you go on, even just tell me. Let's talk a little bit about Phantom Thread. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I think most people are familiar with Daniel Day Lewis's work, and they're they're pretty familiar with um, uh, the director whose name escapes me right now, uh, director Wait. of uh, of Phantom Thread. It's uh, are you talking about Paul Thomas Anderson? Paul Thomas Anderson. I was trying to think. I knew it was Anderson, and I was like, I know it's not Wes. Yeah, it's Anderson. Yeah. So, um, but this, what makes this, what made the film special for you? Um, it's a hypnotic film, and I, it's there's a wonderful thing about Paul Thomas Anderson in general is how he can take a, a story where if you were to give somebody the synopsis, um, it would sound like it would be the, like a, a boring or kind of lowbrow movie. Like if you look at Boogie Nights and say like, yeah, it's a movie about the porn industry. Um, you, your expectations would be completely um unlike what the actual like outcome of what the movie is and and a similar here with phantom thread he uh crafts a story based on um a a clothing designer in the 1950s in london england so um just off the bat that's like you know sounds like some so, sort of like stale bbc drama but um but it's his approach really that is encapsulating is engrossing is uh is uh, hypnotic, I think. Like um, the amount of, um, I guess, research that went into the creating uh, and crafting of the story itself, and and the details that they included um, are are evident in in what you see. You know the um, and and it's it's. I think it it's what cinema to me or movies are, which is. Uh, a, a well-told story using all of the grammar of the language of cinema. Uh, you know, there's there's symbology in the imagery itself, in the language of the the dialogue, in the cutting of the story, in the camera movement, um, in the pacing. Because um, that's the thing, people. Yeah. I mean, it's an it's an, uh, a little bit of a lost taste to have a, pa- a pacing for a film. That's a little bit slower, but still really engaging, you know. Yeah, I think that's the challenge of of modern day cinema. Um, It's how you how you can tell a story that's still um, patient but stimulating. Um, It's funny his his work in general. I would say that that there is a little there is a theme of that. The thing you touched on at the beginning. It's a sort of a small story inside some context that you you know it's not really the context that's important it's the it's this little story and inter, in you know interaction between these characters and inside this context um and what's funny about that to me is uh, you know there will be blood is probably his most well-known film i guess these days and it's the least like that you know <laughs> like that one's more of like a this character study of this bombastic character uh with his with his epic arcs you know story arc 
but these other his other stories are like you know like like Heart Eight and Boogie Nights are kind of these you know something more in, in between in, in between the moments of the of the uh, context I guess for like a stupider way of saying it. But go ahead, <laughs> you were articulating yeah, no. much better than I was. No, I, I no, I think you're right on. Um, I think his uh, looking at his early films is important to see his in in order to note his growth as a filmmaker and and where he's gone from, um, like. I remember hearing him in a commentary talking about like the first, and this is something that's kind of ubiquitous throughout the, the notion of, of storytelling in general, especially with cinema where you, where the first few pages of the screenplay or the first five minutes of the story have to be, uh, they have to capture you immediately and keep you engaged and keep you hooked. And that, that was his, and his way of doing that early on with like with Sydney or, or as people uh, have come to know it as hard eight. Um, he just had this idea in his mind of like seeing some guy's pants catch on fire and like, <laughs> yeah, the guy it, like suddenly the, it, like a, whether it was like his uh, pocket um, uh, lighter kind of just blew up in his pocket or something like his pants catch fire. And like, yeah, it's like these, you know, kind of odd, bizarre things that happen right away so that it keeps us, like, wanting to know what's going to happen next. Um, and so, you know, he did stuff like that in in Heart 8, and then after uh, Heart 8 came Boogie Nights, and, you know, with the big, sprawling, uh, long take uh, um, on the Steadicam and Boogie Nights, and then Magnolia with these, like, bizarre, kind of coincidental... Um, stories of of chance of and um, and then and punch drunk love was like a yep. and and an, an oddity and I think that was his exploration of of like you know the absurd and bizarre. Um, but it's like it's the um, you know we capture you know come in for the absurdity, stay for the little story. You know, like that's his mm-hmm. <laughs> that's his shtick. Right? Yeah, that was his departure from an ensemble cast because his. Um, I think he, and he, you know, you could hear him in some of his like behind the scenes stuff and, and uh, commentaries or interviews or anything in regards to Boogie Nights and Magnolia, uh, especially Magnolia. He, he's like, looks back on that as being just way too long of a film or, or just, you know, longer than, than he might want to make these days. And, uh, and it was a grueling an absolute grueling um, production for him. So when, after making Magnolia, he was like, let's try something different with production. Let's, let's make it smaller. Let's make the cast smaller. Let's uh, go, go at it in a completely different, um, in a different way, um, which was, which was interesting. They would like write, he wrote the screenplay, they would shoot a bit of it and then they would edit, look at it, realize they needed to change stuff and they'd go out back and shoot more. Um, a different way of making it. Well, so so with Phantom Thread, you know, how would you characterize that in terms of fitting into his his uh, body of work? Um, I, I think it's a culmination of a lot of these approaches that he's done before and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And um, and one thing he did was, especially with uh, kind of taking the the helm of cinematography. Um, was he said like I'm going to take control of you know um, the camera and and, um, and and guiding the lighting and camera work and all that stuff and I think he he approached it similar to Punch Drunk Love 
but at the same time put the amount of work and effort as uh as like a magnolia or um or you know there will be blood where he did uh, an extensive amount of research on the subject matter and collect as much information from anywhere he could get it and him and daniel day lewis worked on the screenplay together um where daniel day lewis would be just ordering books online and and they'd be going through books and books and books and and pta would be gathering any information he could that would be useful for the story. And, uh, and then they got this house in London and, um, where they would do a lot of the shooting where they, it was basically all on location, um, in this one house where they thought they'd have a lot of freedom to just use this house and realizing that for a film production, it was a massive house apparently. Um, and when they actually got into the production of it, realizing how much smaller the house became once they got all the equipment and people inside. But, at the same time, it felt uh, it felt a little bit more intimate um, because it wasn't some studio set. You know, it was an actual home that they could work within. Um, and he and he also the way the way I found he works with actors is he he lets them go. You know, he lets he lets the actors work and 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 bring what they have to the creative nature of the of the project. <laughs> Yeah, which can be wonderful when it works. It can be a disaster <laughs> when you lose control of that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think he has, I think one thing that he hasn't spoken to would be his uh, ability to corral and, um, and guide performances because he kind of gives, he gives a lot of credit to the performers themselves as he should or as anyone should. You know, actors do an incredible amount of uh, hard work when they're, when they're in front of the camera. And, and it takes a really good actor to to lose themselves in the in the space and role and in, in, in the moment and and bring something truly different than anyone would ever think to the scene. And but he he has the ability to allow them to do that and at the same time you know guide the performance to how it fits the mood of the story. And I think especially when it comes to Phantom Thread, the mood is so. I mean, it's so precise. It's like um, it's like heart surgery or brain surgery. The way he works with, you know, um, how to guide the feeling, mood, pacing, and um, mm. and sequence of events in the story, so that like the performances are what's really driving the story home, and how how the character arcs of um, of Reynolds, Woodcock, and um, and Alma um, shape and shift throughout the whole story. Uh, it's, 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 it's fine. It's very like fine, uh, small movement, but you get somewhere by the end. Um, sure. well, I, I'm, um, I mean, you know, you, you're, it's, it would be a movie that everyone, you know, who's interested in movies has on their list of things to see. It's just came out so late that, haven't managed to get there yet. Um, yeah. I, I do want to. I do want to move on and talk about Itonia because I'm excited to talk with someone else who enjoyed it. Um, but before we get there, why did, you, did you other some, people you spoke to not enjoy it? Well, it just hasn't. No, not that. Not I've not. Not that I spoke to anybody who didn't enjoy it. I think a lot of people missed it um, because oh, just missed out on it. Well, they just didn't. It didn't seem like it had any kind of uh, like it wasn't worth uh, taking the time to go and see it because it seemed a little bit sort of light or, uh, they, what their mm. expectations were, were a little different. But before we get into that, you hit on one of my, my, my giant pet peeves, uh, because you mentioned that you, you know, you saw in a director's commentary, something that Paul Anderson told you about storytelling that stuck with you. 
the loss of the director's commentary, right? So oh, all yeah. the movies that we're watching now, and it used to be, I used to love uh, his uh, commentaries, Wes Anderson. Like there's just a few that were just so insightful. And like, you learn so much about the, you know, for better or worse, sometimes some of them were really, you know, I enjoyed I mean, things that's... less after hearing them, but it really missed those. But... Yeah, that, that is, that, that's, Honestly, that is your film school right there. Um, if you were to just sit with commentaries, film commentaries, you, you get everything right straight from the masters themselves, um, you know, and, and what goes behind making these movies. I mean, uh, if you go to actually um, the Criterion Collection on filmstruck.com, they have, they have commentaries. And I watched... Um, uh, Cohen Brothers. Um, what was their their first one? It was like uh, I keep thinking Bloodwork, but it's it's it's, it's um That's something simple. something yeah Blood, Blood simple. simple. There you go. Uh, yeah, Blood Simple. Watching the commentary on that was great because that was their first film, and they were talking about it. You know their challenges and what they um, what they went through in making a low budget movie. You know. Um, and how they achieved certain shots that are now like so memorable from that film um, is, is, is incredible. So that's a great resource right there. But yeah, I mean, it, it is unfortunate that you miss out on commentaries. You, but you know what? Um, I recently downloaded Citizen Kane from iTunes and it came with extra features, including commentaries. Oh, great. Well, that's, nice. um, that's great. So I don't know if that's like, the common thing on iTunes in general with purchasing movies, if they all come with extra features, but I, yeah, I was missing out on that for a while. I found a website called like film school org or something where you would, you know, they had just a plethora of, of just commentaries and maybe you wouldn't even see the movie itself, but you get the audio commentary. Um, but yeah, I think that's, well, you also, if you saw uh, Spinal Tap, this is Spinal Tap, the commentary is like in a, a separate movie with those two in character, <laughs> doing mm. comment, running commentary through the whole film. Like that, in a way, was, you know, there was like an extra, there was a DVD extras for like outtakes or extra sections of the story that were completely just new. And then also a commentary that ran through the whole running length of the thing that was a different movie altogether. So That's great. I have yeah. to watch that because I've only seen the, the movie itself. Yeah, or the you know, like this is these things are, I don't know, those are those are nice touches. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I'm old, I'm 54. Uh, you know, the the idea of when you used to go to the record store and buy an album, um, that you had this piece of art that went with it, and you had liner notes, mm-hmm. and you, had, you know, the credits for the people that worked on it, and you got to know their names and know their work and the context of everything, and it's, it changes your way of looking at it when it becomes everything became this disposable item. You know, my yeah. my old guy theory for why people don't pay for music or stop paying for music was at some point music became so easy to get and so disposable, and it was like uh, on this electronic file that was didn't really have a you couldn't touch it, hold it in your hands. Yeah, didn't really have a that, that tangible value. tangibility. Tangibility yeah. is a f- huge thing for I think for human beings in general. Like when we feel something in our own hands, that's how we. Um, we start to value it, its actual yeah. um, existence. And so when you have something if, if, that's intangible, as a, like, it's like a thought, then those 
those intangibilities kind of lose value of the thing in, that you're talking about. Sure. Well, it's um, like going, you know, going to a place like if, if you visited Yemen, when people talk about it being bombed and it being a refugee crisis, it means something different to you than when it's like some spot on the map you can barely identify. You know, so yeah, just about yeah, our, having that that kind of dissonance. Cognitive well, on, dissonance. on that dark on that dark note of cognitive dis- speaking of cognitive dissonance and the days be- be- when music was valued and everything else, let's go back to the nineties. And talk about I, I Tanya for a second. I I take it you're you're a little younger than I am. So how how let me start with this. How familiar with the story of Tanya Harding were you before you went to see the film? I, all right. So what I if you were to ask me what had happened before I saw the movie, I'd say um, I'd probably fall into the category of people who would say, yeah, I think. I think Tanya Harding like hit her, hit um, Nancy Kerrigan with a bat or something. Um, I, I don't quite remember the exact like scenario, but I remember basically Nancy Kerrigan being injured in the knee because uh, Tanya Harding like wanted to like win gold. That's that's pretty much like <laughs> right. which is yeah, so completely you... <laughs> wrong. Um, right, and it's like no matter whose version of the story you believe, it's still wrong, right? Yeah, and uh, and that was the amazing part of seeing the movie is actually, and that's what I love about you know films where they can they give you a different perspective on a story that you think you know and realize you don't know anything about it. Um, yeah. Well, I okay. So here's, let, me, let me start with a couple of things that I liked, and we'll see. I'll get, you'll get your take. Um, I, I love anything with unreliable narrator. You know, so I love this idea that you're you're watching the story, and as it goes on, you realize that. You know, you don't, uh, you you don't know who to, which version of events to believe, and then it turns into like Rashomon, where you're like, I was just going to bring version, that up. <laughs> like every version yeah. of the story is both inaccurate and true. Like the, it's, uh, or to quote uh, Slavoj Žižek, it's the uh, the story is more important. That I mean, the tr- the truth in the story is more important than the facts, right? Yeah. So anyway, mm-hmm. go ahead. You were gonna you were gonna bring up that aspect of it as well. Yeah, no, I was just gonna, I was just gonna bring up Rashomon in that, in that kind of, um, yeah, we don't know, and I, I love that idea too, like of not knowing whether your narrator is actually being factual or not, but, um, but that's because that's the that's, way storytelling is, though. When you tell a story about something, first of all, what that happened to you, let's just start with a first person story. You know, it's it's still from your perspective. It's really hard to know mm-hmm. as a listener if that's what really happened. No matter how trustworthy the storyteller is, and then when you're telling a story about someone else's story, then it becomes like this: the mythology matters more than what actually happened because it what makes the better story. You know, almost is what's still, I think. Yeah, you know, so. yeah. I mean, it's funny because that's kind of what cinema is in general. I mean, if you wanna if you wanna tell any kind of story, especially based on something that happened in real life you're going to have to manipulate the story a bit to work better for the format medium of cinema. That, that doesn't mean that you, you can't divert, you know, um, certain aspects of, of standards of the, you know, kind of like how we know a story is told by the, the end of, by 20 minutes in the story. <laughs> that's when the inciting incident occurs and which is generally where first act ends. And then, you know, second act begins and we've now entered a whole new, um, experience for the, for the protagonist. But, but, you know, you can, you can shape that and shift it and change that however you want. But, but 
in order for, um, especially to make your movie palatable for most people, you, you will have to shape your story. And that's kind of what I'm going through now with this screenplay I'm working on based off of a real, um, an actual, you know, based on real events, but I'm having to kind of shift and shape things and compress scenes and people um, just to tell the story in a, in a more palatable kind of um, easy way for audiences that's going to move the story along. Uh, but it's not, it's not just, I mean, that although it being palatable and like something that people can follow is important, I would argue that, you know, you're better off telling the story in a way that gets the point of the story across than yeah. getting all the facts correct. That, that's kind yeah. of what I'm getting at, right? Because the, yeah. the point no, of the true. story yeah. is, is what's really, that's where, yeah. the, that's where everything happens, right? Um, totally. So, so, you know, in, in me about I, Tanya, like, I mean, you know, I, I felt it was, the reason I, th- I think it's the best film that I saw this year is the, the comprehensive quality of it. In other words, there's so many elements that were amazing that all worked so well together. And I'm like, I'm not generally a big fan of a jukebox film. That's just song after song rather than a score. and all mm, this other kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but that film so nailed it. I thought, I mean, maybe it's because of my age group that, you know, like that, that period, like the, it, they were all things that were not exactly all hit songs, but they were songs that t- easily touched. They were iconic in the sense that they, I, they were, yeah. Touched a certain time. But it's not just that. It's sort of like everything about the way that things put together and and so on, work working together. I, I just love when a film is integrated that way. Um, I, I don't know. So so I, I've, I've I've commandeered the program talking because no, I'm excited to talk to somebody about it. No, it's great. So so what did you uh, you know aside from that like what what did you feel like were the high points that really why did it connect with you? Because for me it's well, obvious. It's I mean you know then all that those icons of the '90s like I I was alive then I was an adult young adult it all have happened to me in my world. So all that stuff is easily relatable for me, but for someone like you that didn't know the story, you know, what made it to connect with you? Well, I think it's important to, um, if, if a story is going to be at the, you know, um, spotlighted in an American history or, um, you know, or some, something, a story that people are going to be talking about, um, at the, at the water cooler, at work or whatever, um, I think it's important to infuse some um, some of the actual truths of what what had gone on, and I think it's um, I think it's important for, for I think it's important to bring out the truth in Tanya's actual story because it's it's interesting, and the truth that I took away is that you know she was this um, she was she had had an uphill climb right from the beginning in from every direction from within her internal struggle with the family or her internal struggle with herself, with her family and with, um, the U S Olympics and, um, and the, and the, how the world views her from the media's point of view. Um, and she was an underdog story to begin with and but never, but not viewed that way at the time. The thing, that's the yeah, thing. No. It was a real, uh, it was one of the first times that I remember, thinking about things in terms of the media creation, you know, like a, the persona of somebody being a media creation. And I felt I I was really brought home to me watching the film because I thought even myself that I, you know, I, I looked at her a certain way that was a, because the way she was portrayed by the the people who had control of the story and control the narrative. Um, But, 
she could have easily been an underdog story that people really rooted for. Yeah. But instead, she was the pariah. She was the person that's mm-hmm. standing in the way of beautiful Nancy Kerrigan, you know, and the rest yeah. of the wonderful, uh, you know, feminine American skaters or skaters, you know, all from all around the world in the Olympics. So, yeah, she was like persona non grata in that world, whereas there would have been a certain era where she would have been the, the hero of the story, <laughs> you know. Yeah. The way the media positioned her. So it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. I don't know. What, let's talk for a second. Uh, you know, by the way, I'm with director, cinematographer Lee Peterkin, who's uh, gracious enough to be our guest here. Let's talk for a second about, um, you know, just uh, anything that comes to mind in terms of not just overall films, but uh, specific performances. Or, I mean, I know obviously we touched on these two things, uh, these two films, but anything that stands out to you that the movie may not have been necessarily at the top of your list, but the performances or cinematography or something of this nature was memorable for you. Huh. Well, you know, one, did you see call me by your name? No, uh, have not seen it. It's the next DVD on top of my, on top of yeah. my DVD player. No, but I haven't seen it. Well, yeah, I, I was, I was just, um, I, this kid, uh, Timothy Chalamet, Mm-hmm. Um, so he was in, he was also in Lady Bird, um, and he was in, um, Call Me By Your Name. And I, I thought his, he, his performance, I, honestly seeing him both in, in both of those films that came out in, you know, 2017, I think it was important to see, um, him as a performer in those two movies coming out when they did, because you got to see two completely different people, um, around the same time. So that, you yeah. know, your, mem- your memory of his performances didn't really dissipate. But um, I think he showed such a maturity and, um, and vulnerability and Call Me By Your Name that was, I think, it was really impressive. It was really impressive. Even um, uh, Serja, uh, I forget her last name, who was in Lady Bird, um, her performance was... Ronan, Ronan. yeah, Serja. And yeah. we just had this discussion that I... I learned how to say her name properly <laughs> last year, and I we, when they when her when she came up, her, we were talking about Lady Bird on the last show, and and it, uh, it was like oh, I can't remember. I remember. <laughs> Shersha, that's it. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, I, have, I, I, I think we'll now have to say Shersha uh, on every episode of the podcast. That's going to be like an obligation. <laughs> yeah, for repetition, it makes perfect. There you go. Exactly. Um. um yeah, she was. I, honestly, I, I'm kind of kicking myself for not seeing three billboards because I, I, I feel like I'd be remiss to mention any of the performances yeah. from that. From oh, no, what no. I hear, right, right, exactly. But that's the thing. I mean, uh, I always get to this point. I mean, this is the third year now running for the Aces, uh, and the it's often you know I often have a list of things that I know I still want to see that I imagine are going to be you know uh, worthy contenders for things. Um, that I, you know, I've already accumulated by the time I get to this point. And then when nominations are announced and I started hearing about things that I hadn't mm. even thought about that weren't on my radar, you know, that period between when nominations are announced and the voting is done, you know, I've spent so much time the last couple of years, you know, watching um, things that I didn't even, weren't even on my radar that it's, uh, you know, I, what the lesson I learned this year, I tried to see a lot more stuff before, uh, this time of year, it's like as the year was going on, I tried to like really keep up um, so that I didn't get this big backlog. But 
you know, the, the flip to that is that sometimes you just, there's going to be too many movies to see. You can't see. Oh them. yeah, absolutely. I have um, like 170 movies on my watch list and, and the, and it keeps growing. Yeah. That's the trouble. How many, so here's a question. How many, how many movies would you say you've seen this year? Now, you know, you can include in there as out of the 2017 movies, let's put it that way. So even if it was a, an Amazon movie, but it's a, you know, released in 2017, uh, roughly what's the number of films that you saw this year? Uh, let's start with feature length films. Let's start with that. Um, like an under 50. Yeah, definitely under 50 from under, 2017. Under 25. I'd say, I'd say, uh, yeah, maybe 15 to 20. Yeah. F- 15. That's actually, you know, that's actually a lot. I think, I think I'm at, uh, you know, between 30 and 50, I think is where I'm at. But, um, the, I, I think from what our research is the last couple of years that even the people who are really engaged, you know, if they, they would say they're film lovers, right. Mm-hmm. Most people have seen fewer than three. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's the, that's the real paradox of this thing is like trying to recognize because they're rewatching so older films. That's big. That's a big. Or they're watching streaming series. You know, and yeah, and they don't have Movie Pass yet because that changed my life. Yeah. So there you go. So you you've offered up some. This has been a very uh, valuable thing for 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 not only listeners but for you know your host that that you can get uh, the Criterion Collection on Filmstruck has director's commentary and that there's yeah. a site that just has commentaries called something like Film School Commentaries. And, yeah. Uh, and that, and that uh, you know, MoviePass is a must-have. I, I, you know, this is a very, very L.A. insider comment, but, you know, my only problem with MoviePass is that I love the Arclight and the Arclight doesn't, doesn't oh, take it. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, you know, probably at some point, probably at some point I... I ought to break down and just do that so anyway um i think it's a, i think it's incredible it's it's such an asset to so many for film goers and for filmmakers the way i see um it playing out is because i read i read an article um that from someone who interviewed like the ceo of movie pass and they said that their goal wasn't to make money on subscriptions so movie pass, they don't care if they break even. They they are happy if they just break even with subscriptions. Where they really um, expect to make any money is on selling the data of who's going to see what to the studios. Sure. Yeah. And so so that that that's the one thing that that's what we're kind of selling our you know when we buy such you know uh, such a subscription that makes movie going such an accessible thing, but. Um, but on top of that, so if everyone's going to see all the movies now because they can go see one movie a day for an entire month, you know, it, uh, then that means it's going gonna, it's gonna to open up more audiences to see lesser known films. So if everyone's gone to see, you know, Black Panther and they all, all went to go see the latest Marvel, whatever, um, but they can still go tomorrow to the movie theater and see something else and it feels like it's free... Um, then yeah. they're gonna go see. They're gonna go see. You know, Call Me by Your Name, which I think is uh, Phantom Thread and Call Me by Your Name are, are important to I think the the kind of zeitgeist of cinema these days because it it shows audiences that we don't need these massive set piece films 
that are just about um, these major events taking place every scene, you know, or, or, you know, physical going from here to there and running from, you know, whatever kind of villain or whoever it is. Um, that stories can be engaging and emotional when they're intimate and they're um, about the human struggle and the human condition, which is really at the heart of every story, uh, which is important. And that's why we, we watch movies. Uh, they take us away and they also remind us of who we are. Um, uh, I, could, I couldn't have said any better. That's a beautiful button <laughs> on, our, on our show. Tell me for a second, Lee, before, before you go, what are you... Uh, what are you working on next? You mentioned the story uh, based on true life events. So this is my kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working on something that happened uh, uh, like to me because, you know, uh, especially with it being, um, you know, of my first feature, you know, like really sinking my teeth into big, um, into the world of long form. Um, I want to, I want to write from the heart, write from something I, I know. And, um, and this has happened to me and it's a bizarre story and it's how me and my wife got from Brooklyn, Bushwick, uh, from Bushwick, Brooklyn to Los Angeles by way of, uh, Portland into Northern Cali and working on a weed farm for a while. <laughs> and it was, um, it yeah, it was, it was like a random story that, uh, you know, led to a lot of bizarre events and meeting like some characters that that are beautiful and, and incredible and amazing and scary and all kinds of uh, things. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm writing about that story and, um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting journey, but um, that's kind of <laughs> well, that's, that's what I'm working on. But it sounds like, uh, you know, that's, you just described life, you know, a weird story where somewhere in the middle of going from point A to point B, you got sidetracked into a weed farm. I mean, that's, that's just like an archetype for life. Sounds like. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, Lee, thanks for being with us. It was a great talk. I mean, I, 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 if you don't mind, I'm going to I'll lean on you again sometime. We'll get back. We'll talk about more. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Things that happened in the 90s or. Surface. <laughs> director's commentaries or something. We should do a whole show just on direct. Oh, I, let me director's just, commentaries. can I just throw this out there? Because this, I found this website maybe sometime in like the fall of last year and it's called letterbox. Um, letterboxd without an E bef- between the X and the D it's called letterbox.com. And it's, it's such an incredible resource for like for review for movie reviews, seeing like, you know, what other people are saying about movies, you can use it to, I I don't even work for them and I'm not getting paid by them, but I, I (laughs) want to put it out there because I think it's such an incredible uh, little asset to have. And, you know, you can make a, um, a movie diary of like when you saw what, and you can rate it, you can leave your own reviews. Um, It's really cool. And you can also use it to see, it's kind of like there's another website called justwatch.com where you can type in whatever movie you want to see and it tells you what streaming service or where you can see it. And they do it on Letterboxd too. You can see the trailers for like any movie. They also categorize by director. Um, So that's helpful too. Because a lot of like Netflix doesn't categorize by director and all these Mm -hmm. other uh, streaming services don't categorize by directors and i feel like if you love movies you know directors and if you know you know the directors you can get a whole lump of movies that you you'd love to explore in their oeuvre of film right this is i, but, I feel um, like this show is going to require uh an an appendix that has all the listings of <laughs> sites on there it's great 
Fantastic information. But yeah. Well, it, I just thought anyway, I had to throw that out there because it was. No, that's great. Like, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. All right, Lee. Thanks for being with us on the ACs. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That's all the time for this edition of the ACs Artist Choice Podcast. Uh, thanks again to uh, producer Miranda Guzman for putting it together. As always, to Emily Lutzker for helping keep the ACs afloat, and to our guest uh, Lee Peterkin. Just want to let everybody know you can visit uh, theaces.org. That's T H E A C E Y S.org uh, for uh, lots of information on the Artist Choice Awards, the ACES, third annual ACES this year in 2018. And I am your host, Will Massasek, saying, go see some movies. See you next time on the ACES Artist Choice Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.